tomato. Hi, Secret. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Uh, uh, I'm okay. Okay. All right. Hello, listeners. Um, How are you doing? Answer in the comments. <laughs> um, welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast that was definitely named that also last episode. We are marching on in our review of um, Check Please, the webcomic. The last strip of the webcomic has literally just been posted as we are starting to record this. So, feelings are high. Shade tomato greens is what I'll say about that. Cool. Very good. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's all look at our outline. That is helpful and informative. So, um, yeah. Welcome back. We're we're glad that you're here. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun because just honestly, I'm very angry about this comic, but you know. Maybe reading through it, I'll just be like, oh, you know what? Actually, I remember why I liked it. Maybe. So um, following up on our conversation last episode, which was mainly sort of an introduction, um, we were sort of grasping at straws to, to figure out how many installments of Check, Please there actually are. And I've gone back in and counted. And I think the answer, although there are some caveats, which I'll get into, is that there's 104 strips, or at least I think we'll, we'll do 104 episodes, about 104 strips. And what that breaks down into is about 94, actually exactly 94, sort of main story installments. So if you went to the Check, Please Tumblr and you uh, hit the tag main or OMGCP update, uh, you would find 94 strips that kind of lay out the story. There are um, 23 in year one, 19 in year two, 26 in year three, and 26 in year four. Then there are 10 comics that I would call maybe like supplemental. By my count, there are seven hockey shit with Ransom and Holster comics, although, um, like, asterisks on that as well. Footnote on, on the hockey shit comics. There are two that are comics about Jack and Shitty giving people their dibs within year two. And then there's a, um, a bonus comic for year one that was included in the year one Kickstarter and it's numbered 14.5. So I guess I would say my plan would be to talk about these like as they come up in the sort of publication order, because I don't know, they, they fit into the telling of the main story that way. That sounds good to me. I also was a Kickstarter supporter, but I moved across the country and my Kickstarter books are not with me. Um, oh. So I'm to ask you to remind me of certain things. You want to know what? I have digital copies of those. So oh, I do. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I do. So I can I have digital copies oh, of them. 
But please send me. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Oh, I, you know what? Actually, never mind. I'm sure you have digital copies somewhere. So we certainly don't need to share materials in that manner. Of course. Oh, man. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we're, we're looking at basically like 104 total episodes of story. And then of course there's a lot of bonus material. Um, the point I would make about the hockey shit comics is that, um, there's one comic that seems like it's a hockey shit comic, but it's actually labeled as part of the main storyline. And it's at the end of year one. It's the very last comic of year one. And it's also posted out of sequence. So obviously we'll, we'll get there uh, in, in sort of short order because it's just at the end of um, the first year of the comic. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I always thought that was technically part of the sort of hockey shit sequence, but technically it's not. Which who knows if that's, if, I mean, what I will say about the OMGCP Tumblr is that it's not the most legibly organized archive in the world. And so, um, so that's something to talk about maybe as we go forward. Yeah. I mean, it's part of, part of what makes this interesting is that I think in order to do this, we do sort of have to take a step back and actually ask like, well, what is, what is a strip? What is like an episode of this comic? There's a lot of material that's associated with this, uh, that's associated with this comic, but I think a lot of people would consider much of that maybe like non-canonical, or they would say, well, that's word of God, and word of God isn't part of canon, and there's a bunch of stuff that's like very badly organized, like that strip 14.5 that's technically part of the story of year one. It's like, unless you have that year one Kickstarter print book and it's sitting in front of you, how would you know that comic even existed? I Which, only, go ahead. Oh, no, it's, it's interesting for me as someone who was around when the Twitter was active, like the first time, and how much of the extras were, was, was huge in kind of getting the people interested in the comic and participating in the fandom. Um, and it's really interesting to me because to me, there are parts of the story which are completely incomprehensible without that extra material, but somehow it doesn't count as the main story. And that's particularly true for the first two years. And I think it really changes later in the comic. Although like whether it gets more or less comprehensible is certainly something we can talk about. But um, I think the structure of the story really changes. And at the same time, those extras are so-called extras. I don't know. There's like some weird like concentric circles of what counts as canon and what doesn't, depending on who you ask. Um, and that shifts over time. I don't know. It, it's like a really, you can really track the change from the sort of like fun little project that someone was doing to livelihood in part through the structure, I think. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think that sort of talking about that stuff around the kind of main strips that we'll be looking at is maybe interesting in terms of figuring out what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I guess I, I see us doing sort of like 104 like mainline episodes corresponding to the 
you know, things, things that seem to fit kind of evenly in the um, sequence. I mean, I agree. I think that's what makes the most sense for us to examine because ultimately, now that they're books, now that that's what people really encounter and you might not read the supplemental tweets at the end of the book or whatever, right? I think that's what that makes the most sense to look at in terms of this piece. This is an art piece. That's the art piece. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it would possibly be interesting to, you know, maybe sort of like once we go through the main material or if we're like really getting bored because it's been going on for a long time, maybe maybe we can, you know, do special episodes where we look at like certain chunks of the, the tweets or certain types of supplemental material. But, um, you know... I don't know. I mean, even with the tweets, it's like they've been reorganized so many times. Like they were initially posted to, you know, at OMG Check Please, the Twitter that was maintained by Ngozi tweeting as Biddy. Then they were repackaged on the OMG Check Please Tumblr. Then they were further repackaged on the... Um, website she eventually made. Then she locked the Twitter and would release little bits of the tweets in various sort of blog posts or supplemental material kind of scattered around her various sites, but particularly in the kind of commentary posts on each of the main strip comics. Then she would sort of condense them and edit them and distribute them to patrons. Uh, while the Twitter was still locked, a lot of while like year three was posting, then she unlocked the Twitter. It's just like, then, you know, they ended up in um, the two main publications from first, second, and now they've again ended up edited in yet another format in the Chirp book that was crowdfunded on Kickstarter and sent out to backers earlier this week. So it's just like, I don't know, this this weird like organization and reorganization of this material in a way that's like, what are you supposed to do with all of this? And how much of it is canon? And which of these sources is actually canon? And does it really matter? I think it's also worth thinking about the tweets and kind of supplemental materials, but especially the tweets. Uh, because Ngozi ended up sort of branding herself as knowing where the story was going from the start, which is arguably true. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what was up in her planning stages, you know. Um, we can we can speculate. I think <laughs> that's perfectly fine. I plan to, I'm sure, because I have lots of theories, especially as we get on towards year three. I'm just abound. I, I abound with conspiracy theories. But until then... Um, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe she had a perfect outline from day one and I'm a fool, like whatever. But but I think as you see the tweets and sort of the way that she condensed and repackaged and re-released them, is that um, because what happened is that uh, when she started writing this comic, like like the, the strip we're going to look at today, um, Ngozi wrote and released as though it is the year 2013, which was the year in which she was writing, right? So there was this like one-to-one... Um, release in real time. And then obviously as the comic got more complicated and as it became her livelihood and as just like presumably becoming an adult is, I mean, being an adult is hard and full of busy, terrible stuff. So, um, so she 
uh, her schedule got off, right? He, uh, the final things that we're talking about, I think take place in 2017. We're now in 2020. And so she left the Twitter at least in part, um, so that she could sort of like make real time, quote unquote, real time tweets in the year in which the comic was being written that she then released later when the comic was actually released in real time in our universe, not in comic universe. Um, I'm getting lost in my own explanation here, but there's something really interesting there about the sort of word of God quality of what is canon, what is not canon when it was written, whatever she says about like fry guy on her, you know, gozy Twitter status and whether that counts as a piece of information that should be taken into account as part of part of the story. And it all comes back to, in my mind, in some way, the way that she presents herself as sort of this extremely present, um, authorial voice throughout, which, which we can look at when she starts writing notes and, and so on. But I, I don't know, there's something there that's really interesting to me. Well, um, you wrote at the sort of bottom of this section of the outline, um, the structure of the strips, episodes that Ngozi early on compared uh, to stills from a film. Is that something oh, uh, there is something that Ngozi said at some point. I cannot remember when because this has been seven years of my life. And I didn't have time to substantiate this because I had to read a bunch of articles about like early 20th century Greek history today. So I didn't get a chance to reread everything Ngozi ever wrote. But at some point um, a couple years ago or more, she was talking about how she envisioned each update of the comic and how she drew each particular little panel because each strip tends to be of several panels, right? And she said that she didn't think about it so much as, maybe this is when she was still at SCAD actually, she didn't think about it so much as different panels of a comic, but instead she saw each panel as almost a still of what the film would be, were she making um, check please as some, you know, as like a, a, a visual animation or a TV show or whatever. Um, and so there's something to think about the way that she structures the narrative as well in conversation visually with TV and film. And also the weird way that throughout the comic, which we'll see as we go on more and more, there are bits and pieces that are missing as though this is an excerpt of a larger work, um, which is part of why those extras feel necessary at times to me to understand the story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that if you read or even just look at without looking at the actual dialogue, the comic, I do think it certainly has a cinematic quality to it. It definitely looks like something that you could see on screen in front of you, either animated or acted out. It really truly has that quality. And I think I, I take the, the point that her sequential arts degree from SCAD would have been training her not just to make comics, but also to, say, do storyboarding. So, right, exactly. Even the aspect ratio of, how, of these particular panels is like a screen, like it's like a film still. She also, I mean, came at this project from having written a screenplay Mm-hmm. where she's thinking about this material through the lens of, you know, a kind of filmic storytelling. And then she's hopping to a, a comic medium. 
So it's just invaluable. And I think that's really like palpable when you're looking at the story. But I also would raise the question that like, well, that's all well and good, but like it is a comic. And especially once you're like printing it as a book, you know, just the kind of episodic kind of, you know, excerpts from, or, you know, clips from a larger film that you're maybe not seeing all of, like, does that translate necessarily? Like I have, you know, because I'm an edgelord, looked at say some of the, you know, middling and negative reviews of the comic on say sites like Goodreads, which are posted by people who are just reading the book versions and apparently not sort of immersed in the kind of online fandom culture. And the critique that a lot of them make is, I feel like some of the story is missing. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And the, I, I personally, as someone who has read every piece, like every extra ever written and every tweet ever tweeted by the OMG Check Please account, I gave up on reading Ngozi's tweets after a while because I, I couldn't, couldn't keep up with all of the many things that were happening in the world and that Twitter. But, um, but I've read every piece of Check Please material that I think exists that I have access to. I've been a patron for a long time, et cetera, right? So I've seen a lot of stuff. And I also sometimes feel like there are pieces of the story missing. And Ngozi will, will, will frequently sort of like comment on little pieces of the universe, which I find very charming a lot of the time in the notes, but also sometimes find frustrating because it will, it will reveal a piece of information that is like unknowable if you're just reading the canon. And so as someone who is sort of invested in like authorial intrusion onto the text or whatever, I'm really interested in that kind of thing and interactivity as a reader. Um, I think it's really worthwhile question if you're if you're not coming at this from like an obsessive perspective like you know some of us over here what do you get out of this and if it's a cute love story that's great if it's a cute love story that like seems like there are parts missing what does that mean if it's a cute love story but the parts missing intrude on your ability to enjoy the overarching narrative what does that mean like I don't know I think it's worth I think it's worth thinking about as well as part of this intro, I want to raise something that I wouldn't say it was an oversight necessarily because comic 424 had either just posted when we recorded our first episode or it was not yet posted. I'm not sure exactly of the timeline of the past two and a half days of my life. But um, something interesting is that Last episode, we talked about the first comic, 1.1. And in one of the very last comics of the story that was posted, you know, a couple of days ago, like what, it's Saturday today? So it was posted on Thursday. There is actually a little reference to the first comic. Should I get into that or? Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Well, um, yeah. So we talked about how in the first comic, Biddy is saying that he's going to meet the boys, capital T, capital B. And indeed, uh, later in this episode, this podcast episode, we will meet the boys. 
But Biddy goes and meets the boys off screen. And then he comes back 29 hours later and he says, I met the boys and the things they did to my pecan pie were felonious. Meaning like, as a felon would do. And in comic 4.24, while Biddy is giving a little speech, his voiceover is in one panel laid over a scene of Biddy in the missing scene from 1.1, holding the pecan pie that he's baked, standing in front of the house, which had not been introduced yet in comic 1.1, staring at the open door. And there is this voiceover from a speech that he's giving in present time, so at his own college graduation, saying, I'm also a native of Madison, Georgia, and am, arguably, Famwell's most prolific baker. I have baked somewhere between 350 and 500 pies during my time at Samwell. And that was just during this finals week. Like many of you, I knew attending Samwell meant going a far away from home. All right, that's actually a typo in the comic. Meant leaving my comfort zone. And then within fall 2013, Biddy is stuttering on the word this, and he says, the, this doesn't look that bad. So I also, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to point out that we'll talk about this comic when we get here, but in addition to the typo, his eyes are not aligned in this one little panel. And so that's like a really interesting thought about 2013 Eric Biddle. Oh, God, yeah, that's actually true. It was before he had his uh, eye correction surgery. <laughs> That's why they got so big. <laughs> oh. okay. okay. Anyway, sorry. Let's go back. In the first, in the first panel in in this particular strip, um, Biddy's hands are shaking, so he's clearly nervous, and he's staring up at the house in the next shot with like, you know, wide-eyed trepidation or something. And in the last panel where he's facing the open door to the house and you can see his back and possibly Jack, maybe Jack and like ransom on the porch, maybe. Um, He stutters as if he's afraid. And the point of our podcast is to look back at sort of strips and ask ourselves where do they fit into the kind of larger narrative so this is very interesting to me because it is effectively sort of changing the meaning of that first original strip my interpretation of Biddy's actions and his behaviors in 1.1 is honestly that he doesn't seem very afraid at all. He seems like overly confident maybe, overly enthusiastic. There's kind of like a a panel where he's like frowning and sort of clutching his face, but 
I don't think it has anything to do with him being like afraid to meet the boys. And now I think you could maybe make the argument that in 1.1, he's vlogging. So he's like talking to the audience in a setting where he's comfortable and also maybe in a, a place where he's being performative. Whereas the flashback in 4.24 is not a vlog. It's showing sort of what really happened, so to speak. And his entire demeanor is completely different. So the question that I would ask you is, how do we deal with this? Is the meaning of the first comic being retconned? Or are we getting an alternate perspective? Or does 424 change the meaning of 1.1 in some other way? I can tell you how I interpret it, but it requires me talking a little bit about how I have learned to enjoy the comic in the past two years. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, great. Um, so because of events in year three and year four, which I found really frustrating, I ended up changing how I read the comic, uh, which means that I started taking certain things in the comic um, I don't know whether to say at face value, but detaching them from the romantic tropes that I knew they were pointing to. Uh, and so that helps inform how I read Biddy and Jack's relationship, the relationships between other characters, why the heck anyone is doing anything that they're doing. And for me, a huge part of that has coming has been coming to understand that even though the comic is third person in the sense that we are looking at Biddy from some like outside vantage point, maybe, fucking Johnson Johnson, I don't know, but you know, like, or B Biddy's vlog camera lens is usually what we're, we're supposedly seeing. Um, the, I have started to understand the narrative framework, not as a sort of like invisible screen through which we are just engaging with what Biddy is writing about and talking about. Sorry, he's not writing. He's talking. He's never writing except to Jack about highs. Um, but instead, uh, we're kind of getting things from his perspective. So for me, this doesn't really change 1.1 and the way that I read 1.1, which I agree, he doesn't look nervous. Or if he's nervous, he's sort of being performatively nervous. He's um, showing off. He's being pretty like theatrical, I guess, for his vlogging audience of like however many, you know, tweens are watching him go to college. Um, for me, the way that I read the end of the comic is that Biddy shifts his own perspective on what happened. And so because the way that we see certain characters changes, the way that we see Biddy changes, personally, I read that as Biddy's perspective on himself changing. And so he sort of, for me, one way that I would read this and the way that I probably am reading this most of the time is that his perspective of what he felt at that time changed because he no longer has access to who he was at that time. Does that, that's like a really convoluted answer. Or maybe he was just nervous and he didn't want to let the tweens know. I don't know. That's my two options. Um, I mean, I think those are both good options. I think that they can both be true. I would also offer an alternate perspective 
which is that my guess is one of the things we'll see as we read through this comic is that the story of the comic changed and that the meaning of the comic changed and the personalities of the comic changed for various reasons. And I think it's essentially just a retcon. I think the Biddy who we meet in the beginning of this comic is not the Biddy who we're saying goodbye to when he's giving that graduation speech. And I don't think it's all just because of hashtag character development. I think some of it is because the purpose of the comic to the creator, to the audience, and just sort of in the cultural landscape changed. And that changed the message that we were supposed to be taking away from it. I think the biddy who we meet in 1.1 is not supposed to be any deeper than just a kind of like sassy sort of ingenue who's like, yeah, I'm going to go into this party. I'm bringing a pie. Everyone loves pie. And then he shows up and like, you know, the boys, capital P, capital B, fucking pie, and maybe also eat it. And he's horrified and, you know, the scales fall from his eyes a little bit about, you know, how the boys are. So I don't know. I think that's kind of like one of the things that was interesting to me is like, yeah, I don't know. You could interpret it all of these ways, but I think looking back at the first comic, what the first comic means, not just to Biddy as a character, but to the story of Chuck Please, is different at the end of the story than it was when the first strip was posted. That makes sense to me. I mean, the reason that I have this really convoluted sort of like, let me, okay, let me like triangulate what Biddy feels about every single character based on how the perspective changes is is trying to make sense of, of, to me, really obvious narrative shift from, from Ngozi. Um, so, I, yeah, I agree. Are you ready to meet the boys? Uh, I'm, of course. All right. Uh, you know, something that I've noticed that people do on podcasts is when they close a segment, they maybe, like, give a little break so that people can pause the podcast and, like, get some edibles or something. So um, do you want to take a break here for like a second or two? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Although when podcasts do that, I never take a break. I just keep listening. Oh, me neither. But I've noticed that they do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. We're on break. See you back here. If you you want to go do something, you can take a break. (laughs) That's cool. Okay. What would I read more about Greek history? That's that's fine. I'm I'm good. Oh, I I don't need a break. I literally just was like, well, I guess if people want to pause, they could now. Okay, break over. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Uh, it's time to meet the boys. Um, script one point two. The boys is. Um, Originally posted to Ngozi's um, own Tumblr on June 12th, 2013. And that noise you just heard was my uh, 
computer informing me that my warranty has expired. And um, sorry. Yeah, no, it's real. So um, here we go. Biddy is saying to the watcher, to the viewer, hey guys, sorry about the lack of updates because he's been very busy and he's been practicing for hockey and he hasn't been this sore since he was preparing for Southern Junior Regionals in 2010. Then there's a little picture of Biddy figure skating at Southern Junior Regionals 2010. Then he goes on to say uh, that he's met the boys. And there is a skip to what appears to be a scene in a dining hall where he says that he's met a guy named Shitty. And Shitty comes over and he pats Biddy on the back in a manner that looks to be visually aggressive. And he says, hey, Biddy, you finally showed up to team breakfast, you little fucker. I know what I, you know what I like about you, Biddy. You're a dude from the South and you're not a bigoted dick-faced cockhole. Good for you. And then Biddy says he still doesn't know Shitty's first name. Then Biddy introduces Ransom and Holster, or rather Holster and Ransom. And they're having a little conversation basically about um, girls they've been texting with who they want to, you know, have sex with. And then... There is a picture of Biddy fucking powering behind somebody. And it says, and last but not least, our dearly beloved captain, Jack. And Jack says, it'll, you need to eat more protein. And then the final strip in the panel is Biddy looking at the viewer and there is a gif or a gif, don't know, don't care, that says, bitch, you did not, over Jack eating breakfast. It's very important, I think, here for me to mention that Jack is backlit, so he's like this sinister figure, but his eyes are not backlit. His eyes are still eerie and ghost-like. Um, oh, just yeah, no. He's fucking creepy. Yeah, he looks... Also, it's a it's an older version of, of his first haircut. Like, and it's not amazing. But it's also amazing because it makes him look... A, it just looks like a, a slightly serial killer, serial killer-esque is what I would say. Oh, he is. He is a serial killer. <laughs> um... Yeah. Okay. Which is, is, I mean, there is something to be said here, I guess, about the fact that he looks sort of like scared and cowering behind Jack, but then he's sassy at the camera. So I guess what you could make the argument that there's this like dichotomy between like sassy vlog bitty and like nervous. I can't, I don't have any good language. The only word that came to mind was UK bitty, and I'm not even in anime, so that didn't feel good. I believe it is pronounced UK. I think it is. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, well, we don't know anything about that. So just move on. Um, I will say that this and the first strip are both reprinted in the Kickstarter publication and presumably in the Macmillan Professional Volume 1 in full color. 
So when the strip is colorized off of web, Jack looks a little less backlit. He's still obviously shrouded in shadow. You can see a little bit of him kind of like illuminated from the back. He definitely looks a little less freaky. You can see that he's drinking what appears to be like two glasses of milk and he's eating three hard boiled eggs. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Good. Feels right. Maybe it's not milk. Maybe one is milk and one is water. I definitely think he would like drink a hearty glass of milk with his breakfast. I fully believe it. I also used to work with someone who was a former bodybuilder and was no longer a bodybuilder, but still ate bodybuilder food. And so he used to like come in in the morning and eat like six hard boiled eggs that he would microwave in the staff microwave and drink a glass of milk. I don't know. I just really feel that 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 Jack would also do this oh he would yes i mean he'll never actually do his own microwaving of course because the rest of his life is basically going to be you know all all dietitians all the time but um yeah what have i written down about this strip uh what did i want to talk about i know this is a super professional podcast up to this point um Yeah. So I guess just thinking about this on its own merits, like, um, I don't know, does this work? What are we getting here? What are we learning about the boys? How does this help us understand Biddy? I think that it does work for the most part. Um, Again, I think that it, I think that it works in its context as the second strip. I think that the Biddy that we see here is again, not necessarily the Biddy that we see throughout, but like, as an extension of the first strip, um, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of a handle on who the pe- at least some of the people that this that this like young guy is hanging around. Um, so for me, it 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 tells me that he feels a bit like a fish out of water, but no one's being uh, you know too much of an asshole to him. But all of these guys are kind of assholes. Like, should he? Opening up with like, you're not a bigoted dick-faced cockhole. It's really, it's really something. What a way, what a way to, to say to someone, um, I'm glad that you're not as bad as everyone else is from where you're from. Like, that's a really interesting way to open it. Then you've got Ransom and Holster slash Holster and Ransom talking about like, you know, guaranteed pussy. That's really, that's really something. The last but not least, you've got serial killer Jack. So I feel like it gives me a good impression of, of that this like sweet, young, sassy man being put into this um, pool of hardened 20-somethings who play hockey. Hardened 20-somethings who play hockey. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think when she is introduced... He's not just like saying something incredibly rude and potentially sort of regionalist, classist, depending on how you want to read it. He's also basically like yelling and he's like slapping Biddy on the back. So Biddy is shaking in this in this strip, actually, that or uh, Shitty has hit him hard enough to basically like shock him in the dining hall, like his eyes go wide. And um, yeah, I mean, he definitely comes across as like a presence. I obviously don't think that at this point we were meant to be thinking like 
oh, you know, it's problematic that this, you know, cool white hipster guy has privilege and therefore he's kind of an asshole, even though he thinks he's not. I think it's just, you know, he's a gregarious personality who says what's on his mind and isn't self-censoring. I don't know, but like, clearly he's intrusive. Um, I don't know. I mean, how, how out of whack is Ransom and Holster's conversation about pussy with what we see of them throughout the rest of the comic? I mean, I think that through years one and two, like we see them at Kegsters and so on, and they're talking about puck bunnies. Like, I think that it's pretty in keeping. I think maybe it's a, maybe it gets dialed back a little bit. I also think in the context, um, I mean, just for context in my life, when I started reading this strip, I was recently out of college and people had conversations like this all the time. I went to, um, I mean, I didn't go to like a, a small elite liberal arts school in the Northeast. I went to a big state school in the Northeast, but, uh, so I don't know whether like I had a particularly different experience than these characters would have had at their at their particular university, but I can tell you that at my university there were there was a frat row and these kinds of conversations happened on them all the time. And so I think at the time it certainly didn't strike me as weird or inappropriate for those characters. Um, even now I still think this seems more like what I would have expected and might still expect from like youthful athletes talking about ladies um than the than the the significant changes that we see kind of later on in the comic um so i do think there's a shift but i but i think it comes much later okay i think we'll have to keep an keep an eye on that something that's interesting to me is i've seen a good number of conversations where people sort of point to this this being not actually a, you know, child or a YA friendly comic. And I've seen people, you know, say on like Goodreads point to the fact that this conversation about pussy is happening in strip number two. I think that turns some people off early and they're like, I can't give this to my nine-year-old to read. I mean, I agree. This is a conversation I've had with, I think I mentioned, I have a friend who works at a children's bookstore in New York City, um, or at least does when it's not coronavirus time. And this is something that she has had to do. She's had to sort of like veer children away from this brightly colored hockey comic because of something that their parent has said that makes her think like, oh, it won't be appropriate for this child. Because they, there's a lot of like wheeling chicks in the first, you know, couple of years. There's a lot of conversation about that kind of thing. Um, whether or not that's child appropriate is like, you know, we can have that conversation, I guess, with parents everywhere at some point. But, um, but it's certainly not what you would expect from something written for children. Well, as a uh, parent to the world, so to speak, I would like to... <laughs> I would like to just get out there that um, I almost certainly think that it's appropriate for children. I think that children need to know about which emoticons get you pussy. I think that if you start college with that information, you know, you're one step ahead. And I think that'll prepare you basically just, you know, for the rest of life. 
my life might be in a really different place now if I had only known that at 18. Yeah, I know, right? Same. Um, I don't know. I think the tone in general, honestly, this feels a lot like how a college hockey team probably would be. Like hockey teams are notoriously awful. And <laughs> this is probably a pretty tame version of what a lot of them talk about. The so-called locker room talk that uh, some have alluded to. I don't know. That's not coming out of nowhere. Male-dominated conversations where athletes think nobody is listening and they have the privilege to say whatever they want without scrutiny. Like, I, I think this is not atypical. I also think Shitty's behavior is not atypical. You know, walking up to somebody, getting in their physical space, being sort of, I guess maybe in the context of this comic or in the context of hockey, you'd call it chirpy about like the South, but also it's, you know, presumptive and like, I don't know if Shitty's ever been to the South or if he actually knows anything about it. I think it's, you know, a bunch of guys who are being presented like the kinds of guys you'd find on a hockey team who are not that introspective and also aren't that sensitive and also aren't thinking about who's around and who's listening to them. I think like, you know, that's the tone of the comic up to this point. Yeah, I agree. And I also think there's something very different tonally about um, the responsibility that the comic feels for itself and what it represents, or maybe I should say Ngozi, but again, I don't want to like, you know, impose my imagination on too much on it and goes, I can't know her or what she was thinking, but I can see what I see in the text. And for me, the tone of these first two comics is much lighter than most. Like there's a weight that gets attached to the responsibilities of being, I don't know, a hockey player, a queer adult, um, a vlogging star, et cetera, right? But in the, in the early days, I don't think any of these characters, and we could talk about whether that's character development or a shift in the writing, but there's like a, there's a lightness in the writing here that's very, um, even though like, if I really heard someone say this in my space in real life, I'd be like, oh boy. But there's something that I feel really um, charming actually about this, but in this sort of like safe fictional space. Maybe that's too controversial to say, but it's how I feel. It's fun. It's like dudes in the morning eating three eggs and having fun. Yeah, it is fun. Even even if what they're saying is kind of like, oh boy, like I still feel swept up in it in some way. It. I don't know. It's like I would I would eat breakfast with these people. I would probably yell back at them. I would eat four eggs. I don't know if I could manage four eggs, but this is, I would absolutely eat breakfast with these people. And I would be like, huh, let's talk about guaranteed pussy, shall we? You know, like, I think that would be great. And I actually think that these dudes, from my interpretation of them at this point in the comic would be like, all right, you know, that's sort of what makes them charming is that they're kind of assholes, but they're, they're not harmful more than like, you know, general systemic harm that we all perpetuate, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of overarching things in this comic is the question of 
you know, how much does, how much do things need to change and what is it that needs to change about them? You know, a lot of the current discourse or the current talking points around check please here in 2020 is that it's this comic that's challenging toxic masculinity by presenting a different kind of college hockey player. But the counterpoint I would make to that is like, well, you know, what, if anything, does that really change? And did it all, was that always its aim? Which I think is important, at least for me, it's important when I start thinking about the way that Ngozi brands her own writing from the beginning as part of this cohesive project with a grand unified ending in place from the very beginning, right? Which, you know, maybe we can revisit, maybe I've misremembered that narrative, or maybe this is like seven years of sort of like remainder bitterness building up or something. I don't know. Um, and I'm not really that bitter, except for a little bit, but I'm, I'm not compared to how perhaps some people have felt through the, the, the grindstone of the past seven years of this comic. I don't know. But um, but I think it's really worth asking, like, if if the goal is to show a world without homophobia or a different kind of hockey team or a different kind of men, then it's really worth asking, why are these characters introduced this way? And as we go forward, why is homophobia an on-again, off-again subject? Which, because I think there's even something sort of like, there's something here about ya little fucker. There's something here about Biddy's like littleness or sort of alienation from these other dudes or difference from these other dudes. That's already implicit just in the drawing. Yes. I mean, he's presented basically giving a vlog where he's summarizing this. Um, He does look good in that, in that Southern junior regionals picture, especially in the, in the print version, the color version, he looks actually kind of like his fiercest and most, most confident. Um, yeah, I mean, he's basically shitty as standing, so he's looks physically much larger and more imposing, and he's taking up more space than Diddy. He's smiling. He looks like a jovial fellow, but he's certainly sort of minimizing Diddy with his presence and with his speech bubbles, to be honest. Right, speech bubbles even crowd out Biddy's sort of like diegetic narrative summary, which also not to get too boring here, but I'm really interested in the way that this comic uses summary. So we should keep talking about that because I think this is really effective use of summary. It's like, there's a really specific voice to it. It kind of wraps up everything that happens. It gives like a little framework for each group of these characters. And it tells us something about Biddy. And I think that's worth keeping an eye on. Yeah. Uh, Biddy says he still doesn't know Shitty's first name. We we now know Shitty's first name. Uh, should we should we hold on that for a later for a later conversation or? So I don't know. I feel I feel very frustrated by the reveal of Shitty's name. Oh man, I would love to get into that. I would love to get into that, but I I feel like I feel like we're we're dancing around the issue of um Jack. Sure. Well let's let's talk about shitty at another time. Oh my god, I'll talk about fucking shitty until I die. Uh I don't know. So it'll you need to eat more protein. I just like I guess that's also sort of transitively in a way about Biddy's size. 
because he's small and he's, you know, got to bulk up. He needs his protein. But like, I don't know, fucking Jack, he looks like just the world's most horrifying person. He's (laughs) built of like sharp angles and he's the only character in the comic with pupils. So he looks like he's going to fucking murder you. Like every time you see him. And Jesus Christ, it's just like, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I think there's also something here. Okay, more conspiracy theories. I think also something here about the way that he, um, the way that he's wearing his clothes, which is, which is not necessarily typical of Jack in later versions of Jack. He's wearing like, I don't know, like a polo or some kind of button down shirt and like a hot, like a men, Samuel men's hockey pullover with a zipper is very preppy, which is not something that I would actually necessarily classify Jack as. I think he's more like, like clothes, fine. Give me a shirt. Like he's not particularly, um, I wouldn't classify him as particularly preppy, but there's something here about this image that makes me think about where I personally believe the archetypes of his characters came from, which is from hockey RPF, re, like re, imaginings of a Sidney Crosby and B Jonathan Taves. And so I don't know if you are lovely listeners know these people. Sidney Crosby Crosby, uh, is, was at one point sort of like the hockey child luminary of, (laughs) of the East. Um, he's from Canada. He learned how to play hockey as like a three-year-old shooting pucks into a fucking old washing machine with his probably insane father telling him to do so. I don't know. There's a whole thing there. He's really superstitious. Some of his superstitions include eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich before every hockey game, which as we will discover is a superstition that Jack shares. And meanwhile, Jonathan Taves is, uh, I, I don't know how to describe Jonathan James, like a mysterious man, also Canadian, who plays for the Blackhawks. Do you want to take over about Jonathan Taves? I don't know how to describe oh, him. Uh, well, his nickname is uh, Captain Serious. <laughs> yeah, no, he was given the captaincy of the Blackhawks at a pretty young age. I think it was like his second season in the league or something. And um, his reputation, both sort of, I think, in the hockey media and also sort of, you know, among people who write fanfic is, you know, as this person who is very like be better oriented. I've looked at his fucking Instagram and he definitely does take pictures of like, you know, self-help books that he's reading or like stacks of self-help books that he's reading with, you know, posts that are like, you know, still climbing that mountain or like whatever. And um, I think that some of Jack's sort of sternness and goal-orientedness, you know, he's not eating for pleasure. He's eating three eggs because he needs more protein. I think that is definitely... Jonathan Taves, my understanding from being peripheral and adjacent to 
hockey fandom is that I mean I like actual hockey but like hockey fandom fandom my understanding is that Sidney Crosby eats whatever he wants and doesn't care about protein so um (laughs) I don't know that's not my impression but like to be honest I don't know very much about Sidney Crosby because he irritates me so I don't know I don't know that much but here's what's true, and uh, you know what? Actually, let's hold that for later because we'll get to a we'll get to a hockey we'll get to a hockey shit with Ransom and Holster, a comic about um, hockey butts, and maybe we can. We can- <laughs> but yeah, I mean, definitely, I think the sort of Jack looks at breakfast like he is not a person; he is purely a functionary of the hockey team he represents. Yes, and that. And and his captaincy also represents a sort of like very stern, very intense need for all the moving parts of this hockey machine to be working at their best. And clearly Biddle, by virtue of being like a blonde twink from the South is not very big, um, could potentially be a squeaky wheel. I actually don't know. I don't understand why they like haven't had practice together yet or if they have, or if they haven't, like I'm, I'm not really sure at this point. Um, but I imagine they must have at least skated together. Oh yeah. With classes just starting and morning practice. So they have been practicing together. So I guess maybe he's like, I saw that Biddy out on, I saw, he doesn't call him Biddy yet. I saw that Biddle out on the ice and I don't know about that. Right. Like maybe, maybe that's where that's coming from, but yeah. Anyway. And then, um, yeah, I mean, hard to, uh, honestly, I don't know. It's, it's been quite a fucking trip. Fewer than four years, like three and a half years after this goddamn, you need to eat more protein panel. <laughs> they are fucking engaged to be married. And- I can't. Okay. I know that I've been talking about them getting engaged to be married right when Biddy graduates four years. But I didn't think it would happen. And I know this is not on the topic of, of 1.2, the boys. But it sort of is, because really isn't it all about the boys at the heart of it, you know, some way, anyway. Getting married for the boys. <laughs> getting, married, getting married for the boys. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I just really, wow. I mean, the thing is that within my, like, within my sort of in-universe perspective, of course they're getting engaged. But the part of me that uh, teaches undergraduates, is myself an adult, knows people who got married at 22 and are now divorced, is like, oh boy, what a choice. What a, what a romantic choice. I think here's where we'll wrap it up. Something interesting about this strip, which um, sort of persists through the early phase of the comic, but isn't as much of a thing going forward is that the final panel is a, let's just say moving image. Bitch, um, <laughs> you did not overlaid on Jack while Biddy puts a single finger to his cheek and looks at the camera like he is disgusted. And what's interesting about this to me is that it's this like turn away from his displeasure. He is looking at you, the viewer, whatever uncomfortable thing has just happened to him at this breakfast. 
he is now breaking the fourth wall and turning frontally to the viewer and looking at you knowingly like, isn't this guy a piece of shit? And I think you and Biddy are supposed to agree on that point. And I guess if I could go back in time and talk to fall 2013 Biddy, I don't even fucking know. But I guess the summary of the rest of Check, Please is Jack certainly did. Uh, he, <laughs> no, like, like he will. <laughs> he did, and he will continue. Jack will, Jack will continue to do for the rest of this comic. Biddy <laughs> will go from knowingly turning to the viewer like, ugh, this piece of shit, to something else. Although I will say that I think the, the access that we as the reader to knowing what Jack did and will do does change because of narrative choices that we can examine as we continue to examine Biddy's uh, turn away from the viewer and towards Jack. I feel like if anybody is listening to this who has not read Jack, please, uh, which I can't imagine is anyone, but just for the sake of it, it seems like we're implying that Jack is going to like roofie somebody or rob a bank, maybe. He doesn't actually do anything awful. He's just, he, he has a degree of stick to that if I were to encounter it in an actual person I knew would horrify me. Yeah, I agree. I say this as someone, by the way, who of all the characters that I over-identify with, with in this comic, I over-identify with Jack, uh, which I don't necessarily feel great about. <laughs> Oh, he is the most important character. Like, he's probably my favorite character. Tied with my other favorite most important character, who we don't know anything about. However, um, I don't know. I love Jack. Like, not to undersell it, like, I love him. But I love him because of, like, the things that are about to, like, come up in this comic as it goes on. Yes, I agree. Um, any other any other thoughts you want to throw in about uh, capital T H E capital B O Y S? Uh, I, I'm glad to revisit them. I I miss them. It's nice to see their youthful faces uncorrupted by you know time <laughs> time the trials and travails of college hockey and having to graduate and get a job that's not playing hockey. Half of them don't even manage to do that. I, yeah, I guess. All right. Next time on Check Displeased, we are, you know what? It's been a grueling road here following the main plot from 1.1 to 1.2. So we will be sidestepping into a supplemental comic called Hockey Shit with Ransom and Holster, where you and I will find out the definition of the noun low i'm pretty excited okay um this has been great i fucking love this i hope this is like just the first of many many more episodes where we go way too hard and people on the internet say how did they talk about this 60 word comic for an hour (sighs) 
that is the way that I live. Um, and I have to say our conversations well before we ever imagined a podcast were usually about a 60 word comic for mm, three, four, five, eight hours. So, uh, frankly, listeners, you're lucky we're stopping here. Okay, guys. Um, we will see you in episode three, Hockey Shit with Ransom and Holster. I've been Secret OMG. And I'm Tomato Greens. And uh, we don't have a sign-off yet, but... Fuck this comic. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys.